Good morning. So we're, we're in this series uh, called It's Not What You Think It Is. And uh, we've been thinking about uh, how with Christianity, uh, a lot of people have a kind of an awareness, you know, and, and they sort of think they get what it's all about. But once you start getting into the Bible and scratching a little bit and discovering what's below the surface, you discover that Christianity is actually quite different from what you're anticipating. And it's so much better. And so, was it three weeks ago, we started thinking about God. Everyone knows who God is until you get into the Bible and you see how God's revealed himself to us and you discover that, uh, like we prayed earlier, he's like a, a shepherd going out to bring home the helpless sheep. It's a whole, a, a incredibly generous picture of God as we see that. And then the following week, Dave was preaching and we, we thought about... Um, human life. And everyone knows what life's about. It's about performing well and about, um, you know, what other people think of you. At least that's what it feels like. That's what the world kind of shapes us to think life is. But actually, when you look in the Bible, the Bible shows us, no, actually life consists in being in relationship with God, in knowing and enjoying a God who knows and loves you. And that's a, a privilege that it's kind of it's not intuitive. It's not obvious. We wouldn't get there on our own, but it's what the Bible invites us to. And then last week we were thinking about uh, the whole issue of sin. And of course, everyone knows what sin is. It's those things that some people do out there, other people. But we looked at a story of, of, uh, that Jesus told, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you were here, you'll remember the story. It was the, these two men, sort of the polar opposites, the two extremes of uh, a moral scale. The most moral person imaginable and the most immoral person imaginable in that culture. Uh, and these two people come to the temple to pray. And the apparently moral guy is very full of himself and very proud and very thankful that he's not like other people. And the other chap uh, just stands at a distance and cries out to God and says, God, if you don't provide a sacrifice for me, I am absolutely, I'm lost. I've, I've got nothing. I need you. And the amazing thing is, at the end of that story, is that God rescues him. God allows him to walk away with a good relationship, in good standing with God, even though he's done all those bad things. And the other guy walks away without that. And that's the real shocker. You see, what we discovered is that sin isn't just something that some people do, but basically we, we do okay. Sin is the, the reality that has permeated and saturated and marinated and pickled every little bit of us. And so whether our sin manifests itself in kind of gross, immoral stuff, or whether it manifests itself in righteous, religious, impressive, respectable stuff, it's still sin. Apart from God, we are desperate and hopelessly lost in our sin. And yet we saw last week just that little hint as that man prayed, Lord, would you provide for me a sacrifice? I can't bring one that will deal with this. Would you provide one? And God does that. He sent his son to die on the cross for him, for us. And so today we're thinking about the language of salvation. The word saved, if you ever hang around with Christians or in churchy uh, environments uh, for a while, you'll tend to hear people talk about so-and-so saved or being saved or salvation. What does that mean? What, what is that? Is that what we think it is? Or like the other things, is it actually better? That's what we're going to think about this morning. I don't know if you've ever been to the opticians. I've been, obviously, quite a lot over the years, and, and I always find it slightly awkward you're sitting in the opticians and, and you've got this person kind of breathing down your face and as they're sort of messing around with the lenses. And, and as a child at the optician we went to, uh, 
the person who, who did that was, had really quite a strange voice. And, and so I spent my entire time concentrating on not laughing at the person who's right here as they're saying, Peter, do you think first or second? First or second? And I'm just sitting there going, I can't see a thing because my eyes are welling up. But, you know, just this kind of one or two, A or B, this or that. And actually, there's two views of salvation. Okay, there's the first option, which is uh, that commonly known biblical phrase that I think the average man or woman on the streets would probably quote to you. And that is, God helps those who help themselves. All right, don't, don't start looking for it. He won't find it, but it's a common idea, isn't it? God helps those who help themselves. So if you get your act together, if you turn over a new leaf, if you become a moral person, God will save you. Other people go, no, 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 hang on a second. There's a second option. And the second option uh, is often phrased like this. We can't save ourselves. We've got to believe on Jesus. If we believe on or in Jesus, then we go to heaven when we die. That's what it means to be saved. Okay, so those are the two options, A or B, first or second. God helps those who, helps, uh, who help themselves. Or believe in Jesus and you go to heaven when you die. Or is there something else? Is there something more? Is there something better? Let's go back to Luke 18, where we were last week. If you have a Bible, you can turn to it. It's page 877 in the the Bibles on the tables. Uh, It may be 877 in yours too. You never know. Uh, We will project uh, some on the screen too. So after the story of the the two men going to the temple, Jesus uh, then, or Luke, takes us through a sequence of stories. And we won't go through them. There's, there's a whole sequence there for the rest of the chapter. But there's one moment that's really critical before we get to the story that we're looking at in chapter 19. Okay? It's, uh, basically what happens, this is still in Luke 18, this, this rich man who's got it all together. He's really done well for himself. He's moral. He keeps the law. He's obviously successful. He's got money. He's got means. He comes to Jesus. He's the kind of person that's got it all together. And I think he wants to impress Jesus. And Jesus says to him, uh, you need to sell everything and give the money to the poor. I don't think Jesus is saying that we all need to sell everything and give everything to the poor in in our activity, in our reality. But uh, I think what he's saying is, for this particular individual, this is going to get to the heart of the issue. And so he makes that request, that demand on that man's life. The man, suddenly his whole countenance changes and he, he just can't fathom it. I thought I had it all together. And he walks away sad. Jesus kind of watches him go and and is a little bit sad as well about the whole interchange because it really didn't end the way he would have anticipated it ending. And as the man's walking away, Jesus just utters out loud, it's so difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he looks around. He says, "It's it's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. That's a pretty bizarre image, isn't it? A camel through the eye. Even a gerbil through the eye of a needle would be a bit tricky, wouldn't it? But a camel, that is one big piece of mammal, isn't it? And so Jesus probably spotted this camel, and he says, it's like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. And so the people stood around, scratching their heads, going, what? Then then who can be saved? That makes it impossible. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right, it is. With man, it is impossible, but with God, it is possible. And a couple of verses later, he's saying to his disciples, come on, we're going to Jerusalem. 
And I'm going to be handed over and I'm going to be beaten and spit upon and I'm going to be nailed to a cross. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And they looked at each other like, I don't get what he's on about. Do you know what he's talking about? I haven't got a clue. I totally missed it. But that's how it's possible. It's impossible for a rich man or any other person to get their own life together, to be a success in God's eyes. But with God, it's possible because he does the work. In sending his son to the cross. So that's all background. And then we come to Luke 19, first 10 verses. And this is a story that I think is probably one of the most popular, maybe one of the most well-known Bible stories. I've got a theory. It's not very profound, but I'll tell you in a minute. But let me read it to you first. Luke 19. If I can find it. Here we go. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Okay, so there's a a very familiar story. Right, you probably heard it. If you ever went to Sunday school, you would have heard it. If you've ever read a children's Bible, you would have heard it or read it because this is one of the popular stories. Here's my theory why Zacchaeus is always in children's Bibles. It's because he's short and he climbs trees. Right? It's obvious, right? That's exactly the kind of person you can relate to when you're short and you climb trees. Okay, so Zacchaeus is this really popular story and actually it reinforces people's thinking, doesn't it? Here's a guy who, who's been living a bad life, meets Jesus, and then he decides to turn over a new leaf and, and starts giving stuff away, which is what the other chap didn't do in chapter 18. Now he's giving stuff away and Jesus says, voila, salvation has come to your house. This, this man is in. He's part of God's people. He's a child of Abraham. And so it really does seem to reinforce common ideas. The idea that God helps those who help themselves. Zacchaeus got his act together and God endorsed it. And believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven when you die. Jesus does say salvation. He uses that word. So maybe that's kind of implicit within the story. Well, uh, let's put up a couple of uh, images here. I I do like a good Zacchaeus picture. They're always quite amusing. This is really high-level art, isn't it? I love how he's perched precariously on the branch, you know. The one I really wanted, I couldn't find. It's got Zacchaeus perched on a branch, balancing and waving at Jesus with a big, big grin on his face. Like, Jesus, woo, I'm up here. And, and, you know, you get that kind of sense. And the crowds all stood around going, oh, my goodness, he's in a tree. And and it just, you know, it seems so nice and so safe and so kind of, you know, just, isn't it good? Isn't it good when a life gets turned around? I think actually... As much as I appreciate good children's Bibles, there are some issues here. 
And I think we need to look at this story again and look at it carefully because actually, with a little bit of understanding of what's going on here, I think we'll find that this is not what we think it is, that this shows us salvation is completely different than our human imaginations will take us to, than what they'll take us to. So let's look at the story again. Let's go back to the beginning and uh, let's just walk our way through it. Jesus entered Jericho, he was passing through. Okay, and then we're introduced to Zacchaeus. We're told four things about him. We're told, firstly, that he's a tax collector. Same thing as the guy last week. A tax collector wasn't just somebody who would deal with collecting taxes in the way we are used to. And that's bad enough, right, from our perspective. But, but in that culture, a tax collector was a traitor. He was someone that had sold out to the enemy. You've got the the Roman armies uh, encamped in the country, and they wanted a revenue stream. And so they'd get confused. You know, if they tried to take money off people for taxes, the people could double-cross them and switch back and change language and don't speak your language, mate. Can you speak louder? You know, and they could do all sorts of things to get out of paying taxes. And so they'd get a local. You know the people around here. Would you work for us? Most people wouldn't do that in a million years. But some would for a price. And the price was that uh, as well as having protection from some Roman muscle, they also got to skim quite a lot. They could take uh, from the money they took from others and they could line their own pockets. And obviously that would make them a despised group of people. And so here he is. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. The second thing we're told is that he's a chief tax collector. That means that he had tax collectors working under him. So he would be making money off their making money off people. It's like a pyramid scheme. Never popular. And he was high up on the pyramid and he had people below him and he was lining his pockets. And just to make sure we get the point, Luke tells us the third thing, which is painfully obvious. He was rich. (laughs) Obviously. He'd taken all this money, and he'd lined his pockets, and he drove the nicest car, and he had the latest phone, and he was set, and he was sorted, and he was just rolling in it, and everyone despised him. And then there's the fourth piece of information, and that is that uh, he was short. Now, I've got to be careful what I say about being short, because I don't remember what it was like. In fact, I don't think I ever was short. I do wonder if I might have been born five foot two because I was the tallest on day one of school and all the way through. So I I don't want to say anything that anybody here could be offended at. Okay. I just want to point out that being tall is not all it's cracked up to be. I know if you're shorter, you probably think, yeah, it's easy for you to say, I wish I was tall, but actually being tall isn't great. For example, a school disco, horrible. Because if you can see everyone, everyone can see you. The last thing you want to do is be prancing around in the middle of a hall with everyone watching. So, I, I, you know, parties, social gatherings, shy person like me, being tall is a distinct disadvantage. But there are times where being tall is an advantage. When there's a crowd of people and you want to see what's going on, it's helpful to be tall. Quite a few times we've ended up as a family in, in America on the 4th of July. It's, it's a holiday over there. They celebrate independence from some tyrannical overlords or something. I'm not sure what the whole thing's about. But they have these, they have these uh, parades. And so basically everyone just kind of walks down the street and everyone cheers. It's quite a simple concept. And, and for me, it works really well because I can just stand at the back and I can crack some jokes about England, America and stuff. And, and I can see every... I mean, I can see stuff coming half a mile away. 
And by the time it arrives, I've already watched what they were doing down there. It's totally fine. But for my children, that's not too thrilling, at least not from where they're standing. If they stand next to me, they'll be looking at somebody's back. And so what little people do is they squeeze through and get to the front. Then they can see all the action, and in this bizarre American tradition, they get copious amounts of candy thrown at them. All right, I just, it's bizarre, but they come home with massive amounts of sugar, and they've had a lovely day and a bit of sunburn. So it works well. I stand at the back, they get to the front. So here's Zacchaeus. He's short, right? And he wants to see Jesus, and there's a crowd. So what would he do? Get to the front. Maybe Jesus does the sweet thing. <laughs> but actually, he wouldn't, would he? As nice as that idea might seem in the the kind of safe world of a a 4th of July parade, in the world of Jericho, where he's the most hated man in town, you you answer this, would you squeeze through a crowd that hates you? Would you want to say, excuse me, coming through, pardon me, sorry, sorry, mate, sorry, excuse excuse me, coming through, short guy. (laughs) Because if you do that, with a crowd of people gathered, suddenly you're not in sight of your Roman bodyguards. And everyone around is either a fruit buyer or a fruit seller or a fruit farmer. I mean, it's just like Jericho is Fruitville. And so they've all got these little paring knives in their pockets. It wouldn't take much, would it, to sink a knife into someone as he's squeezing through the crowd. And then later the crowd disperses and, oh, my goodness, there's a man on the floor. Realistically, that's what Zacchaeus would have thought. I am not going through there, but I've got to see Jesus. He's not going to risk it, and I'm not saying we should tell four-year-old children the true version of the story, but he's not going to risk getting through that crowd. But he's desperate to see Jesus, so what's he going to do? He does something bizarre. He hoists up the skirts of his robe, bares his legs, which is bizarrely humiliating, and he runs, runs behind the crowd, hoping nobody spots him, and then he gets to a tree, and he climbs a tree, and if running's bad in a skirt, how much worse is it to get into a tree in a skirt? I don't know, but he tried, and he got up, and he got into the tree, and he was hiding there, and his whole goal was to hide and to be invisible. The last thing he wanted was for anybody to know he was there. He just wanted to see Jesus, and he was so desperate to do it. And so Luke tells us that when Jesus got to that place, he stopped and looked up and maybe pointed and declared in a loud voice, Zacchaeus! What would you feel if you were Zac? This is a disaster. Suddenly the crowd that was starting to disperse has converged with more, more zeal than they've had all day. Zacchaeus is in a tree, I've got to see this. And the kind of uh, laughter, mockery would soon turn to bloodthirst, like they really want to get their hands on him because he's, he's away from his bodyguard. He's vulnerable. And Zacchaeus is in this tree and the crowd is gathered and Jesus is speaking to him. And this is a major moment. You see, basically, the crowd would do anything to get to Zacchaeus except to dishonor the honorable guest, the rabbi who started this whole action. And so they're going to give Jesus first crack of the whip, and they're waiting, ready to cheer as Jesus gives him a piece of his mind. Zacchaeus, get your little self down here, and you need to get to Jerusalem, and you've got plenty of money, so I'm talking thousands of sacrifices. And once you've made the thousands of sacrifices, get yourself back here, and if you promise to stop being a tax collector, we're not going to give you the kicking you deserve. And the crowd would go wild, go Jesus, go Jesus, and Zacchaeus would slink off, and and that's the story they were expecting. And instead, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must come to your house today. 
That's powerful. In verse 1, we were told that Jesus came through Jericho and he was passing through. They didn't have a bypass in those days. They didn't have a, a ring road. He wasn't able to kind of skip the town. He was moving through the town. But that would have meant turning down the invitations. The mayor's wife with her lovely scones. Sorry, I can't stop. I've got, to, I've got somewhere to be. And he's moving. And everyone would be inviting. And, and he would be kind of doing that slightly dishonoring thing of refusing hospitality. But he kept moving. And as he's heading out of town, he comes to Zacchaeus and he says, I'm coming to your house, Zach. That's not rude. Okay, don't, don't think English at this point. Don't be like, hmm, can't invite yourself over. He's, no, no, this is honoring him. And suddenly Zacchaeus is face to face with with grace in a way that he's never met before. Someone who wants to honor him in a way that he doesn't deserve. Someone that wants to be with him. Someone that wants to to eat and drink and laugh and tell stories and and just, you know, oh, my sides are hurting, Zach. That's a great one. He, he, He wants that with me. Luke tells us Zacchaeus got out of the tree quickly. I reckon he realized if he doesn't get out of there fast, the crowd could really get nasty. He got down, and I reckon when we get to heaven, you can look at the DVD. They must have something like that. I reckon if you watch it, Zacchaeus would have pressed up close to Jesus. I don't know what you're doing. Let's go. (laughs) And they would have got out of that crowd because the crowd was angry. The crowd was livid. The crowd was ready to do some serious damage. And Jesus has just provided a way for Zacchaeus to escape from that. In fact, Luke Luke 18 verse 7 tells us that the crowd began to grumble. The word there is like a a quiet murmur that's growing. Kind of like the noise coming from next door. Imagine that growing towards an explosion point. It's that kind of churning anger that's still quiet, but it's building. Uh, And that's what's happening. The crowd is angry, but who are the crowd angry with? Who's their anger towards? Notice what it says. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They're angry with Jesus. I think that's a beautiful picture, don't you? Here comes Jesus to Zacchaeus who's in trouble. He's put himself in a ridiculous situation. He's in a tree. He's humiliated and the crowd want him dead. And Jesus turns the anger of that crowd onto himself in order to set Zacchaeus free. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. That's the kind of God that we have, a God who is willing to go and to do what it takes to set people free from situations they absolutely deserve. And then you come to verse 8. And in verse 8, what we have here is not Zacchaeus turning over a new leaf, Zacchaeus making a commitment, Zacchaeus helping himself to become a good person. None of that. This is Zacchaeus responding to what Jesus has already done. Jesus has already demonstrated extreme and extravagant love. And now Zacchaeus is going to respond with extreme and extravagant generosity. What's he got? Money. What's he going to do with it? Give it away. It's just extravagant. Just, I'll give this and I'll give this and I'll give this. And the mathematics doesn't work. But that's not the point. It's this, it's this exuberant, over-the-top, exa- extravagant kind of giving that is his response to what Jesus has done for him. You know, the way salvation works, it is not that we help ourselves and then God steps in and endorses it. 
It's not that we turn over a new leaf or that we become a good person or that we get our acts together or that we try harder or that we somehow achieve some moral standard and then God gives us the stamp of approval and calls it salvation. It's exactly not that. It's the opposite. We don't deserve anything good. We don't deserve anything but judgment and yet God chooses to step in. And rescue us and to provide a way for us to step out from under judgment. Then we respond. Then our lives are transformed. Then there's morality like you would never have imagined in a life that's truly gripped by God's grace. But it's all God's action. God's the one that does it. And it's not just believe in Jesus and then when you die you go to heaven. I suspect that most of us in this room this morning uh, probably haven't fallen into thinking that God helps those who help themselves, as in the Bible. It's not. But I wonder if any of us have kind of gone with the fire insurance approach, where we, we pray a prayer and we trust Jesus so that when we die, we go to heaven. That's very common in our kind of churches. And this passage says, no, it's not that, it's better than that. Yeah, you believe in Jesus, when you die, you do go to heaven. That's not untrue, but it's so much more than that. This is not an insurance policy. Jesus didn't come to Zacchaeus in the tree and say, Zacchaeus, if you'll believe in me when you die, which will be in about five minutes, uh, you're going to come and you know, be in heaven. He doesn't say that. He says, Zacchaeus, today I'm coming to your house. And for the rest of that day, what Zacchaeus experienced that was so transformative, is what we are invited into. A today-now relationship with Jesus. A fellowship, a communion, a, a fun interaction, if you will. I mean, think about it. Jesus sat at the table, or however they led next to the table, with Zacchaeus, and they ate, and they drank, and they told stories, and they enjoyed each other's company. And Jesus, Zacchaeus felt like Jesus enjoyed being with him, and Jesus could tell that Zacchaeus was amazed. And, and the whole thing was warm and rich, and everything that a good, healthy relationship should be. And that's what the Bible's offering to us. If we had time, we could chase it through, not just in Luke, but we could chase it on through the rest of the Bible. And we would find that human friendship, when it's at its best, is just a glimpse of what God wants us to have with him. And, and having, a, having a brother, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I didn't, always wanted one. You may have had one and would tell me you shouldn't have wanted it. But, you know, we have these kind of limited experiences on earth. But the very best of what it is to have a brother one who cares for you, one who looks out for you, one who's on your side. That's what we have with Jesus, our brother. Think about the very best father relationship. Maybe yours wasn't. The enemy loves to, to pervert and twist and break and ruin these pictures because he knows that that's what the Bible is presenting to us as a reality with God. So maybe your relationship with your dad was hideous, but maybe you've seen somebody else who, who's had a healthy relationship. Or maybe it's just the stuff of fairy tales. But the very best of a relationship with a dad who lets you jump onto his lap and embraces you in his strong, loving arms and who supports you and loves you and cares for you. That's what we're offered through the gospel. Where Jesus shares with us his relationship with his father so that as the father looks on the son and says, I'm delighted with him. Jesus tells us that's how much God loves us if we're his. 
the best of friends, the best of siblings, the best of parents, and the best of spouses too. How many marriages are celebrating marriages today, but how many marriages are so profoundly broken, so hurt, and so painful? The most painful thing in the world must be a broken marriage, right? But whether you've experienced a wonderful marriage or observed it in others, or maybe it's just the stuff of fairy tales, it's not. It's what the Bible offers to us because we can be a part of the bride of Christ. Jesus, our spouse. God the Father, his Abba as our Father. Jesus as our brother, bringing us before his, our Father. Jesus, God as our friend. That's fellowship. That's not the language of insurance. That's not the language of go somewhere when you die and have some nice provisions. That's the stuff of someone to sit down with a meal with and to share your heart with and to pour out your concerns to and to not put on a false front, but to be real and say, God, I'm really struggling and here's why. And God, I'm annoyed with you and here's why. And and God, I'm sorry for saying that because actually I know it's not your fault. It's my fault. And here's why. And we can pour out our hearts to him. And he says, I love you. I'm so glad that I could spend this time with you. And he says, I've got some stuff to say to you. And he says, oh, I'd love to hear it. And we open our Bibles and he speaks to us. And, and we can have the richness of all of these relationships today, now, not just future, but now. You see, salvation is not God helps those who help themselves. And salvation is not just we get to go to heaven when we die. To be saved is to be rescued and to be brought into a family to be brought into a relationship, to be brought into the most satisfying, most thrilling, most amazing uh, state of being that we could ever dream of. And God wants us to have that now. And it's so much not about us. It's so much about him that actually there's still another verse that we need to read here. Because all the way through the story, as you're reading through it, it seems like Zacchaeus is is kind of the man. You know, he's the focal point. He's the one that wants to see Jesus. Can't look over the crowd. So he runs and, and, you know, still can't see past the crowd. So he climbs and Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. And Jesus is just passing by. And then you get to verse 10. And you discover, actually, no, that's not the case. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus may have heard rumors that morning. Hey, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Maybe something piqued his interest. Maybe he wanted to see a miracle. Who knows? Maybe it had been a few months that he'd been hearing stories. It doesn't matter. However long he had planned to see Jesus, it was nowhere near as long as Jesus had planned to see him. Maybe you got up this morning and said, oh, it's Sunday. Oh, I suppose I could go to church. Maybe someone twisted your arm and, you know, you're kind of here because you have to be. Or, or maybe you've been coming to church for years. doesn't matter. However long it's been for you, it's nowhere near as long as it's been for him. Before creation even began, the Father and the Son in conversation purposed to rescue you. Isn't that an amazing thought? Well, we might think we're doing something. We might think we're leaning in to Jesus. And then we realize, no, he's come all the way to us. It's his mission. And we're rescued. And we're brought into the family. And now we can come home. It's so much better than what people usually think. I I suspect it's better than what most of us usually feel. But isn't it amazing to think that maybe 
if the Bible's true, maybe we could say to God, God, I, I want more. I want to experience more of what that is that we heard about this morning. I want to be brought deeper into a relationship with you. Here I am. Rescue me. Because actually we can really relate to Zacchaeus if we think about it. Jesus came to Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus was on a tree facing the anger of a crowd. Jesus comes to us and we deserve to be on a tree. We deserve to be hung and cursed and judged and killed and sent to a lost eternity in hell because of the sin that pervades who we are. And yet the end of Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus came and he carried the tree. He carried the wooden cross and he took it and then he was nailed to it so that we wouldn't have to be. So that we could be set free, not just from the anger of a crowd, but from the anger that wells up within God's heart when he sees the damage that sin has done. Jesus went to the tree for you. He stretches out his arms. And he says, you think you know what religion is? You don't have a clue. This is what I'm offering. Come home. Come home. 